You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get over right now to Geetha Raghunathan. She is our U.S. media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, uh, we got to talk more about what's going on with Disney. It's a big move today. And as Abigail points out, um, it's a big move in general. Kind of, are they winning this issue with Nelson Peltz or have they both won? Everyone's a winner. Geetha, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think everyone is a winner. Uh, I mean, Peltz got what he wanted, uh, which is, you know, the stock price moved higher. And I think it, you know, just kind of, even though it was somewhat of an, I, I think, an unwelcome distraction for Disney when they had so much going on, it really kind of kept Bob Iger on his toes and, and forced him to kind of come up with the plan that he did, uh, which he articulated yesterday, uh, really kind of putting them now on that path to, to sustainable earnings growth and profitability in the streaming business, two things that, you know, investors really wanted to see very badly. Well, Gita, what was so striking to me about the earnings picture specifically is that you're seeing a pretty decent rebound in parks, in their parks business, as opposed to a miss on their subscriber business. Talk to us about that divergence. It doesn't feel like we can call Disney a media, uh, tech company anymore. I agree, uh, Preeti. I mean, if you look at just their operating results from from what they posted yesterday, 100% of their operating income now comes from the parks division. So I, so I feel like it, it parks still continues to be such Wait, I'm sorry, a, did you say 100%? Yes, 100%. Um, you know, all of their operating income is generated by parks because, you know, whatever the linear networks were generating in operating income, uh, that was offset by the losses in the streaming division. Um, so media really is net zero for them at this point. Um, and so everything is sparks, and I feel like it is somewhat mis, uh, I, I don't want to say misunderstood, but definitely underappreciated because it is such a big part of their profit equation. And what we're seeing is not just the comeback in parks, right? But we're seeing the sustained momentum. So you're looking at attendance, it was up 11%. Uh, you look at per capita spending, that was up last year, it was up 40% over pre-pandemic levels. But even if you look at uh, the fiscal first quarter, it was again up about you know 8% or so. So again, steady growth. And if you just look at US park margins, 35%. I mean, this was record high margins. So Really, they are, you know, I want to say firing on all cylinders, whether it's, you know, revenue growth, whether it's extracting efficiencies in terms of costs. Um, so Parks definitely is, is just such a, 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 you know, a lion's share of the profits there for them at Disney. 
if I listen, I feel like they're leaving some money on the table because if I get HBO streaming, I get everything that HBO offers. Or when I get Netflix or Amazon Prime, I get all of the products they offer over the box with my little app. But ESPN, if I get ESPN Plus, then I get like Division Three softball and maybe some Ivy League Quidditch games. Like, <laughs> why is it that I can't get all of ESPN without having to fork out money that I'm that I'm unwilling to, to pay for some stupid old school cable package. Yeah, and this is really the conundrum really for for Disney and for actually the whole media industry, Matt. And you bring up a really good point. They are not able to go in or, or I should say all in uh, on streaming when it comes to ESPN just because ESPN really defines the linear TV bundle. Uh, so if ESPN or when ESPN makes that complete shift to streaming, uh, that's pretty much the depth of the, of the traditional TV bundle as we know it, because all of the sports rights, all of the content, uh, you know, is with that linear ESPN network. And remember, it still throws out about three and a half to four billion dollars in cash flow year after year. So this is really a very important part of the profit story for them, or at, le at least it has been. It is going to be a diminishing part of it, but it has been for a long time. And they don't want to do anything to exacerbate cord cutting uh, because there still is value. I mean, even if it's generating lower EBITDA, uh, it's still throwing out cash. And that, that's important for a business, at least um, for the businesses, especially when you know streaming is still um, but, in a loss-making phase. But couldn't they, I mean, I would pay $20 a month if I could see real ESPN streaming and not have to buy a cable bundle for it. Do they make more than that on a cable bundle? So on a cable bundle, they're making about $12 uh, per subscriber. So they, so they had to do this, they had to take baby steps here, and they already did that. So they have the ESPN to, uh, I'm sorry, the ESPN Plus product, which is, you know, which really has all the non-marquee co content, as you yeah, just Yeah, it should be out, called Matt, ESPN all, Minus. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, but it's all, you know, the Tier 2 sports. Uh, and the reason they can't get the NFL, you can't get the NFL or, you know, uh, the, the NBA or the MLB is is because they want you to come back to the traditional TV package because they're, they're still asking distributors to pay that $12 fee per subscriber. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, pricing is going to be the biggest sticking point when it comes to that, uh, you know, streaming product. Where are they going to price ESPN Plus? You know, our customers, you said $20. I mean, I don't know how many customers would be willing to pay $20. So that is really uh, something that they need to evaluate very closely. But I think just with them kind of separating out ESPN as, as, as a segment by itself kind of definitely paves the way for them to do something much more strategic with it, either, you know, a spin, a sale, or, or that big push into streaming, maybe mm. combining it with sports betting. We'll have to wait and watch. Yeah, betting drives viewership for sure. Geetha, thanks so much for joining us. Geetha Raghunathan there, our U.S. media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, walking us through what's going on with Disney. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We've all heard about quiet quitting, and surely it's on the rise now uh, in bonus season. If you don't get what you want and you can't get a raise, you're less likely to quit your job, but you might as well just not give it anymore. Um, Quiet hiring is a term I've never heard before um, until now, and that's why we're going to bring in Emily Rose, Senior Director of Research at Gartner, um, NYSE, ticker IT for Gartner, uh, if you want to check out the business there. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. What is quiet hiring? So quiet hiring is how organizations are addressing the fact that we've got a massive talent shortage, while also some economic uncertainty. By using the talent they have in-house or contractors to add, get the skills they need where they need the most without adding full-time headcount. But so they so they they're outsourcing. Well, it could be outsourcing, um, but usually what we're actually seeing is a lot more of okay, this part of the business is incredibly important to us we're going to move talent over to make it happen. Um, you've seen examples from the airline industry where anyone who has an office job is being paid extra to take a shift as a baggage handler. Um, or if it's not operational priorities, it might be strategic priorities. So say a business decides we desperately need data scientists. We know the hiring timeline for them is maybe nine months long or longer. So rather than cut our goals for the year and say we're just not going to meet them because we couldn't get the talent we need, we're going to go take some analysts from HR and marketing who have some of the skills that we need and move them over and have them do some of the data science work and then either upskill them, maybe run them through a quick boot camp, or redesign the work a little bit so that either a contractor or someone else at the organization can do the parts of the role that they can't do. Contractors. That's the thing I understand. There you go. Me too. <laughs> Bringing in contract work, that makes sense. And nothing new. Um, is, is, are we in an environment where people are scared to add to headcount for, you know, Wall Street reasons? You don't uh, see stocks jump when you add 7,000 people. You do see stocks jump when you cut 7,000 people. Is that mm-hmm. why they might want to do this quietly? Exactly. So this is essentially a response to the fact that Wall Street's watching, your stakeholders are watching, 
and not wanting to have massively high labor costs just skyrocket at this particular point in time, but also the fact that the work still needs to get done. So does that show up in something like the 517,000 jobs we were got reported on on Friday? Is that something that's showing up in the data or is this kind of a, a, a gray spot or a blind spot for the labor economy? Um, so this is something that you might not necessarily see in the jobs numbers because if someone's moving internally, um, it doesn't necessarily look like a job was added. But they are affecting that, assuming that this goes well for someone, and they're able to perform in the role, they're going to be more likely to stay at the organization and maybe move upwards, which is going to then, of course, keep them from hopefully joining the labor market and going to another organization. And uh, raise their pay, right? Because if I'm mm-hmm. middle management, but also a baggage handler, I'm going to want more money for that. Uh, yeah. You know, yep. if I'm an analyst, but now I'm a data scientist, I feel like yep. I deserve a bump. Yes. Especially because you know, data scientists are notoriously well-paid compared to your typical HR marketing analyst. So this is somewhere where organizations have to see the that side of the coin. It's not enough to just say, we're going to move you over because it's a strategic priority. So that's quiet hiring. You have to pay people. So that's quiet hiring, Emily. What is the extremely loud hiring that we saw last <laughs> Friday? What What's going on with this labor market where we just continue to add more jobs um, than expected, even as the Fed tries to raise rates and tighten financial conditions, and we see a flurry of pink slips coming out of the West Coast and the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, so I can't speak to specific organizations, but in general with these layoffs, they're actually strikingly as difficult as they might be for the people going through them and their colleagues who are left behind. They are a small percentage of the workforce. And so they make a lot of news, but they don't actually have a massive impact on a lot of our jobs numbers. And what we are seeing is that, and the reason the jobs numbers are going up is pointing to that talent shortage that's driving quiet hiring, which is people desperately need talent and are constantly adding it. But what about the intangibles here? Things like uh, more sick leave, unlimited sick days, more vacation time, um, uh, whatever the other intangibles are that a lot of these unions, for example, are really pushing for. How do you even factor that in? So, Creechie, those are actually great examples of how an organization might go about compensating someone or a group of people that they're moving over when they don't necessarily have the budget to do a massive compensation change. Maybe it's a one-time bonus. Maybe it's more flexibility. Maybe it's more um, PTO. Whatever it is, you have to compensate people if you value them enough to move them over, you're going to want to keep them. But does that then have the same effect? Like, for example, is there a trade-off then? Like, I will be willing to take less pay, uh, as, as Matt brings up, if you give me these added benefits. Is there a way mm-hmm. to see that trade-off? Oh, absolutely. And you can actually quantify it. So you can look at something and say, uh, a day of PTO is worth this much in salary, both in terms of what people are actually able to willing to trade off, so how they perceive it, and also what is the dollar value to the organization. I'd love to see that equation. L- let's talk about raises and bonuses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beyond Wall Street, just generally in the American economy, as so many people are hired, um, a- and a- as we see so much uh, inflation employees are going to want bumps, but I guess employers are going to be a little bit worried about the 
possible recession that that we're uh, heading into. So they're less likely to want to give those boosts to salary. What what are you seeing? We are seeing that the annual raise, particularly if it's a cost of living as opposed to a merit raise, is less than the current state of inflation in general. But of course, accepting if there's say a union agreement that requires that it be tagged to annual inflation rates. Um, so we are seeing that. And then associated with that is the lower that rate is, um, the more likely that organization is to see turnover. What does that then, is that equivalent across all sectors? Or are you seeing that, or even the concept of quiet hiring more predominant in, in certain parts of the economy? So I would say that quiet hiring is a little bit less predominant right now in some of the larger tech organizations that are having layoffs because they are obviously dealing with a slightly different situation than a talent shortage. But for most organizations, we see this a lot. It's In some ways, it's a little bit easier to do on-site with on-site workers, but we see this for desk-based workers. We see this for deskless workers. We see this across industries. Where it's easier to do is where you have multiple business units. So say you can move someone, when you decide to deprioritize a business unit, you can move people to the business unit you've prioritized. It's a little bit harder if you're extremely small as an organization. So coming back to the office, you mentioned deskless or desk Mm -hmm. space workers. Um, Is coming back to the office something that everyone's gonna have to do or have we entered a new normal where a lot of people are gonna work from home multiple days a week? I just wonder because, you know, if we do hit a recession, I've heard a lot of people say that's when companies are gonna make people come back. They can try. Um, What we've seen is that that has not worked. So saying you're gonna come back to the office, here are the days of the week we wanna see you. There are very few situations where I've talked to clients about this and they've said it's going great. Yeah. And part of it is that you have to actually explain now why someone should be coming into the office if they don't need to and recognizing that actually by working remotely, they're saving on their transportation costs, their lunches, all of the different wear and tear on their clothing and their their car or however they're getting into the office, all of these little things that add up and also the convenience in many cases of working from home. So if you want to bring people into the office, one, you may need to actually compensate them even more to get them there. But also you're going to want to design those in-office days very intentionally so that you're actually giving people a reason to want to be there. So rather than come into the office and do exactly what you're doing at home, just because we think it would be really nice if you somehow saw other people, who you may not see because they may not have the same in-office day as you. They need to actually, organizations need to be saying, when you're in the office, this is what we want from you. Here is how we've planned your day so that you will get these experiences we're looking for. All right, Emily, great having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. These topics, I think, are interesting to very many people for, uh, for, for, for some obvious reasons. Let's get over to Mike Vogelsang right now. He joins us from Cap Trust, where he's Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director. Mike, what do you think of this rally that we've seen from the October lows? I'm hearing a growing chorus of warnings from, you know, very traditionally conservative parts of Wall Street. Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. Creedy, th- uh, thanks for having me on. I, I think I think the issue is, you know, you were just talking about the recession and the inverted yield curve. You know, there's pretty much everything is pointing towards slower economic output uh, coming for the rest of this year. 
except for employment. Right? We've we've every time the yield curve is inflate, inverted, we've had a recession, but we've never had a recession with employment this strong. So which one of those two is going to win out? That's that's the battle on Wall Street today as we're talking. Um, you know the the. The rally we think is a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction from from a just a you know ho- horrible no good very bad year last year in 22, and as a result we've we've seen you know the sort of the January effect on steroids a little bit. Um, we're 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 of the belief that inflation has peaked. The Federal Reserve isn't going to be as aggressive as as. Um, you know we sort of thought they were going to be three or four months ago, and and I think you're seeing that in the equity markets, but. Um, we we still believe that at some point, weaker earnings, softer economic growth, and and um, high valuations are going to end up causing some problems and indigestion for the market this year. So we're just trying to be really patient and pick our spots when we want to add. But why? But but why do we see? You know, if we're seeing all these, um, you know, bad signs in the data um, in terms of economic growth, why do we see such huge gains in hiring? Well, that's that's exactly the dilemma. We've never seen this before, and you know we were having we were having a discussion in our offices this morning about about this very thing. It's like what what has changed about the employment picture? Maybe it's the fluidity or lack of friction in employment. You can go, hey, if you lose a job, you can go become an Uber driver by four o'clock that afternoon, right? There's there's the there's the ability to bounce around and move. We've had a we've had people leaving uh, the job market on on sort of a different and a different end, right? The demographic spectrum. The the older workers have left. Uh, in a lot of ways. Is there something different? I don't think we have an answer to this. We're just positing the question. Is there something different about the about the employment market in today's world that is changing the, for, for, to use a technical word, the Phillips curve that the Federal Reserve uses, right? Are we going to see a recession while employment stays high? Or are we going to see employment stay high and pull us out and not allow us to go into a recession? All of those things are on the table, and 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 you know, for for people who are simply saying, you know, this is a one-directional market now, the Fed's cut rates, and we're gonna, or the Fed's going to cut rates, and and you know, the long-term uh, part of the curve is is much lower now, and therefore you can bid up prices on the equity markets. We we just think that's that's just not um, how it's going to play you out. You know, Critty, I've always loved the idea that if you lose your job that's a recession. If I lose my job, that's a depression. But if neither one of us loses our jobs, who cares? (laughs) Um, Mike, let's apply all of those great questions to uh, the the market here. I mean, Matt started off this uh, segment by talking about this twos, tens inversion. Do you put any stock in it? Do you believe that this is still the signal it was, say, 10 years ago? Let's be clear. You know, right, it's really it's really simple to to get causality reversed. Um, it's not the yield curve that causes a recession. It's a signal of some things that are going on in the markets that mostly the Federal Reserve tightening interest rates that that historically has led to recession. So don't you know don't confuse causality here. They're they're very often temporal or, or contemporaneous. So it's it's important to to keep that clear. Just because we we're in a in an inverted yield curve doesn't mean that we're going to go into recession. It just means the Fed's been aggressive because we had this bout of inflation. It's also hard to separate out the impact of COVID that we've had. We've never been through this cycle before. We're still dealing with the ripples and after effects of COVID. You know, the COVID, the COVID rock that was thrown into the pond here is still creating big waves and, 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 and having impact on labor markets and on, on, on inflation and so on. So that, that, is, all, that is all playing out. And in, 
our job as market participants and analysts is to sort of sort through that and, and come up with our best estimate for where we might play, where this might play out. But again, you, you need, don't need to look any further than we've we've you know recessions have been have been signaled every time by an inverted yield curve, and we've never had a recession when employment's this strong. Right? So which which of those two immovable forces are going to are going to be proved to be movable? Right. Uh, so what do you do as an investor right now? I mean, if you're yeah. building a portfolio for say a new client comes in with a million bucks, what do you where do you put it? Yeah. Well, l- let me give you a little context. So last year we were we were in really good shape. We were we felt super smart and super confident and super smug about about how well we did for clients uh, because we were very conservative and 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 you know. Um, expected the, the market to struggle. That's the best. Um, <laughs> now, the problem is that same sense of smugness has become a quickly a, a fear of missing out because we're still conservatively positioned. So, you know, full full disclosure here, right? Those who felt super smart last year are feeling pretty stupid this year. And and that's the way markets work, of course. And and um, so the the question is and, and I sort of sort of led with this a bit a, a minute ago that while the market's generating FOMO and it's gradually pulling people into the market, um, we're we're still remaining fairly conservative on our. We have a, we have a fairly high cash position in our all equity portfolios, for example, um, and and we're we're holding on to that because we just think we're going to get opportunity later in the year. We just think that at some point, falling earnings and they are falling, right? The estimates mm-hmm. are coming down. Um, you know, the the Fed the, the Fed's work is probably mostly done. We'll see if they get to five, five and a quarter, maybe even five and a half if, if employment stays high. Uh, but inflation seems to have come off really hard. Um, and and you know that whole that whole mix that whole stew is going to end up creating some air pockets in the markets at some point and and we we will likely depending on facts and circumstances get more right. aggressive when All we right. get that chance. All right, Mike, thanks so much, Mike Vogelzang, there, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Cap Trust. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial Advisors. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
talk to us about um, some other earnings stories. For example, Kellogg came out today. Uh, the maker, I think of them as the maker of cornflakes. Right. I don't know how. Oh my God, Kaylee Lyons is leaving the building right now. Oh, I'm no. watching. We're watching out the We're interactive broker studio. Kaylee Lyons is moving to Washington, D.C. Today was her last day in the New York studio. This is really sad, guys. She is a, she is a like, what is it? A hallmark? Superstar. A hallmark, I think, of Bloomberg Television. Fun fact. Before I was hired at Bloomberg, I called up Kaylee, and I was like, Kaylee, will you help me with the interview to get this job? Yeah. And she did from my Charlottesville dorm room at UVA. Right. That's because you and almost uh, half of Bloomberg's staff worldwide went to UVA. (laughs) It's just me. (laughs) Yes, did you go to UVA too? I did not. I went to Texas A&M. Wow. Congratulations for going to a different college than everyone else. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's get back to uh, Kellogg Cornflakes maker. Um, They came out with earnings today. What do you see? Yeah. So it's uh, sales actually rose about 12%. So when you're thinking of Kellogg, you're thinking Rice Krispies, cereal, Cheez-It crackers. Um, It's also has been raising its prices, similar to these other consumer goods makers to really offset these higher costs. But that's something that has stuck out when you're looking at these uh, these companies right now, that how they're continuing to deal with it. Some of them better, more so than others, but as far as when it comes to the packaged good companies, that's been a big focus. And then something I wanted to point out, Matt, because I know you like to keep an eye on what happens with these automakers, uh, Tesla in particular, I mean, we already had their earnings recently, but it actually, its stock has doubled from its low that was touched in early January. So it's basically up over 100% from its lows. Last year, that stock actually had plunged 65%. Uh, a lot of that is on different optimism as far as these... Uh, w- actually, the Biden administration said it will expand this newly revamped EV tax credit to allow SUVs costing up to $80,000 to receive those types of credits. But I know you focus a lot when it comes to the automakers. So I was curious, kind of your thoughts on Tesla, what's going on there? And well, uh, this big rebound, obviously, we've seen this year compared to what had happened. The, the, the thing is, these are $7,500 rebates right. for buying electric cars. So yeah. this is a material amount of money for most consumers, right? And if you're going to buy a car that costs you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars that's a huge... Investment. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so uh, the, the government has been so slow to come out with these rules. I want to buy a BMW X5 right now. They make a hybrid version of it. And I'm just waiting to see if I'm really going to be eligible. Because the worst thing would be to buy the car and then to find out from my accountant at the end of the year or the beginning of next year, oh, no, you're not eligible. And now the car costs me $7,500 more. I, I think Tesla is going through the same thing. Um, you know, a lot of the even American car makers, if they don't get the right percentage of uh, materials um, in the battery from you know North American or U.S. friendly nations, they're not going to get the rebate. And so, no one really knows what's going on. So, it's hugely important that we get that direction. Jess Menton uh, from Texas A&M, thank you so much for mm-hmm. joining us. Also, she's in charge of stocks coverage for. Bloomberg News. Let's get uh, to a couple of stock stories right now. We talked about Kellogg a little bit, and Jennifer Bartoshis is going to join us on that, senior industry analyst um, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Also talk a little bit about gaming and lodging, because Hilton came out uh, beating estimates as well as resilient consumers and uh, um, paid up and an increase in corporate travel, pushed hotel prices higher as well. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Brian and Jen, uh, let's start with Hilton because we haven't really, really gone through the story yet. Brian, what is it? 
So, you know, Hilton had a good quarter as well as a pretty favorable outlook for uh, next year. Going, I should say for this year, 2023. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of note of caution that they're accounting for the possibility of a, of a second half 23 slowdown or economic recession. Doesn't stop them from having very nice gains in net rooms and, and revenue per available room. Uh, but overall, you know, pacing nicely, both in terms of both leisure and business travel. What does that then mean for something like when we're talking about consumer and the willingness to spend? Is Hilton basically telling us that we're in the clear? I don't think they're saying necessarily we're in the clear. We've come a long way, particularly in, in markets like the U.S. and Europe, in terms of revenue per rail room increasing. That's all acknowledging that if we have a economic slowdown in the second half, we could kind of slow at the margin. Also, from a global perspective, bear in mind that while I think the removal of travel restrictions in China will eventually help, in the short term, you know, China revenue per available room is still deeply underwater relative to pre-pandemic levels, mostly because the initial effect of the relaxation of travel curbs has been a kind of a new round of COVID-19 outbreaks. Well, Jennifer, hop on in here and give us a little bit more insight on kind of your take on, on all of this. Is that, do you share that assessment that this is maybe not the all clear signal? Well, I think that we see a lot of mixed signals and it really depends on what group of consumers you're looking at. Um, there is really a bifurcation in the in the U.S. consumer. And so those that are more well-off or that are, you know, involved with business travel, um, you know, those, those signals may be strong. Um, for those who are at the lower end of the income spectrum, it's still a complicated story. And food inflation in particular, um, along with just overall higher cost of living, has, has really cramped budgets and made people a lot more cautious about where they're spending and how they're spending. Well, and you can see that uh, difference in the stocks, right? Because Hilton is up like 20% year to date. I know we're only um, at the beginning of February, but Kellogg is off five and a half percent year to date. Now, the picture looks different um, last year, right? Hilton had a down year, I think, last year. Um, and Kellogg had, a, had a, a strong year last year, Jen. Why do you see uh, that bifurcation in terms of the stock moves? Well, well, when, you, when you're looking at the, the companies and the space in which they play, um, you know, the, the consumer has gotten less and less tolerant of um, higher priced food. And so people at one point had pantries that were overflowing with goods so that they could go and they could select things at any given time to, to cook and prepare. They're much more selective now. Pantry sizes in kitchens are smaller. Um, and people are being more selective about what they're buying and trying to control that food spend because of that high food inflation and the sense that prices are just too high. Um, and so that's impacting these packaged food companies, and it impacts the retailers involved in the space, that, uh, such as the grocers um, and companies like Walmart and, and uh, Target as well. Well, hop back in here, um, Brian, and talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the dynamic that Jen is talking about. She's talking about it from a commodity perspective, but it feels like even a company like Hilton, for example, even the travel companies are going to be dealing with those margin pressures as well. Walk us through the numbers on that. That's definitely been a concern, although there was a comment on the Hilton earnings call, which just ended that they're seeing a little bit, maybe some moderation in some of the wage cost pressures of the tight labor market, which may very well reflect what we see happening, for example, in other sectors like retail, where maybe you know some staffing levels are being normalized after kind of the COVID demand impact. So if anything, Although labor cost pressures throughout the service industry remain an issue, uh, we may see a little bit of relief if, in fact, you know, there's a little bit of slack in terms of the labor market. 
What, what's the outlook for these companies if we hit a big recession? I imagine, Brian, um, fewer people are going to check into Hilton. It's a higher end hotel, obviously, and more people are going to be eating cornflakes. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, Hilton has, you know, for its part, it does have high end hotels. It also has a lot of kind of a comedy economy and limited service brands. So they kind of play the full spectrum of the market. You know, they are still expecting revenue for available room to be up on average 25 percent 23 versus 2022 so you're definitely looking for an up year but that's probably going to come more from north america and europe than asia and there is factoring in the possibility that the room rate uh support of all that growth may slacken off a little bit in the second half if we do have a recession and they're allowing for that possibility but at least we go into the first half you know certainly with demand conditions in north america feeling quite favorable compared to where we were a year or two back I'm glad you mentioned the North America piece of the equation because we've, of course, been covering Disney earnings, for example, uh, all morning long. And one of the big stories there is the U.S. versus international component. Talk to us about Hilton from an international perspective. So, you know, the the trends really were, were quite mixed. If you look at the trends in the quarter just reported, you know, the revenue per available room compared to, let's say, the 4Q19 before the pandemic, it was up 8% in the U.S. It was up 20% to that benchmark in Europe, but it was down 19% in Asia. And that's because China was down 37%. So, again, there's really some quite significant disparities across regions if you compare, for example, the fourth quarter of 22 to the fourth quarter of 2019. Jen, what about um, Kellogg? How do they look when you divide them up by regions? I always think of, uh, you know, cornflakes as a North American product, but I know that they sell that, Rice Krispies and everything else overseas as well. They do. And, and when you look at the international uh, portrait for, for Kellogg, um, there are pockets of very strong growth, which include Latin America and parts of their um, emerging markets segment, um, especially in Africa and, and Asia. Um, the, the region that's most pressured out of their entire global business right now is Europe. Um, and part of that is still stemming from uh, you know, issues related to the Ukraine-Russia uh, war, um, but it's also that the consumer in Europe has been pulling back faster than in other regions. And so they're seeing that those customers are even more stressed um, than we're seeing in, in areas like the United States. All right, Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Jen Bartashis there from uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Brian Egger, uh, also Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers gaming and lodging for us. I want to get to Matt Smith right now. He's an investment director at Ruffer, and he joins us here in our interactive broker studio, even though he's normally a globetrotting master of the universe. Why are you here, Matt, in, in New York right now? Uh, I'm here as the uh, manager of the fund we launched for U.S. clients at the beginning of last year. What What's the fund focus on? So Ruffer is a, a single strategy firm. Uh, we are the biggest global macro fund you've never heard of hmm. uh, at $32 billion. So this fund follows our single strategy and makes it available to U.S. clients for the first time. What is that strategy? Good question. Uh, we are looking to deliver positive absolute returns. So, isn't uh, that what all funds yeah. are hoping to do? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> well, there's a pretty big focus on relative returns out there. We're trying to not lose money. That's our primary goal, which seems almost uh, comically unambitious. But uh, it turns out that if you can do that and deliver decent returns on top, you will compound pretty powerfully. I see. So, you're not term. so worried about a benchmark. You're mainly worried about the zero bound. You don't want to go below it. That's correct. 
That, that, which means what? A lot less risk, I would imagine. It means that we start portfolio construction from the perspective of risk minimization rather than return maximization, which is what most people would, would think to do. Okay, so you're a macro fund. Where are you putting your money right now? So I think you can break it down into three different places. Uh, our key structural trade, uh, which I'm going to put in the Fed capitulation bucket, is that no central bank in developed markets has got the uh, political or popular mandate to genuinely get rid of inflation. They are all having a go, but we think when push comes to shove, the pain of dealing with inflation is still much greater than the pain of inflation itself, yeah. and that will take some time until that changes. So what does the uh, portfolio result of that look like? It's an allocation to 30 and 50 year uh, US and UK inflation linked bonds. So really what we want is the inflation expectation, which currently sits at around two, i.e. the, the break even. Uh, we think that that reflects the market's belief in total Fed credibility. And as that gets called into question, as people think, okay, inflation's not gonna be two over the long term, maybe it could be three, four, those assets should should do pretty well. Did you hear David Rubenstein talking to Jay Powell the other day? I did. He was like, why not three? Three seems good to me. Yeah. <laughs> three doesn't seem good to me. Two doesn't even seem good to me. But I don't like inflation point, at all. But Rubenstein actually asked that question, right? He said, like, why are we even shooting for 2%? Is that even a fair global standard? And Powell's like, well, that's the standard. Yeah, that's he, what we're he, doing, said, right? he said, why is it? And Powell said, because it's the global standard. There wasn't a better answer than <laughs> yeah. that. It's just it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, one of the most entertaining dynamics is that Wall Street uh, like sell-side inflation expectations are totally in line with that. And it looks a bit like one of the SpaceX rocket landings. So, you know, these SpaceX rockets come down from the outer atmosphere and they land on a boat perfectly. Uh, Wall Street inflation expectations come down from 12, 10, 8, uh, down to 2, and they just sit there. And I think if you go on YouTube, failed SpaceX landings, <laughs> uh, you get a lot of hits. You know, <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of videos of when that went wrong. It seems to us extremely unlikely uh, that they'll be able to bring inflation down to 2, and it'll just stay there. Can I ask about the mechanics of... Uh, these investments, $32 billion is a lot of money. I mean, for me and Critty, that's a lot. Yeah. I guess in the global treasuries market, it's slightly less, but isn't there a liquidity issue with that, uh, even that sum in terms of investing? The, the short answer is no. Uh, we play in pretty liquid global asset classes. Uh, that affords us you know, plenty of room for maneuver. But I don't know if you remember Jeremy Irons in of Margin course. Call. He says you've got to be uh, either the fastest, the cleverest, or you've got to cheat. Um, <laughs> we are not going to be the fastest, and we certainly don't cheat. Uh, I'm not saying we're the cleverest, but what we try to do is position in advance of where people want to end up. So we're always uh, prepared for bad market outcomes. That means that liquidity normally, historically, has come to us uh, at times of crisis rather than us chasing some different positioning that we wish we had when things go wrong. I have a listener question for, for, for Matt here. I was told 
by my spies that you were speaking to John Authors uh, before you came to our studio and graced us with your presence. He writes in and says... John Authors is a Bloomberg Opinion Bloomberg writer Columnist, yes. who's very famous for having written for the FT for years and years. 29 years at Very the famous FT. full stop, I think. Yes, yes. that's fair. Uh, which is, yeah, I kind of pulled like a Madonna slash Moses thing. John Authors, everyone knows who he is. Um, anyways, he's asking uh, what the pressure from governments on inflation fighting could actually be. Is there an analogy... Uh, to Nixon leaving Bretton Woods in 1971. So Nixon left... We're uh, putting you on the spot, Matt. He always brings up Bretton Woods. Yeah. Just for Uh, reference. Nixon left Bretton Woods because he couldn't hold the peg to gold. uh, Because the the tightening he would have needed to do to keep the dollar on gold would have collapsed the US economy. So he chose, you know, an easier path of no gold peg uh, and inflation higher. Clearly, the U.S. government today is not going to repeg to gold. That would definitely lead to some pretty bad economic outcomes quite quickly. Um, I don't think they're going to be able to tighten significantly either. Uh, they are just going to continue solving problems with more spending. Um, and that's what leaves you with higher structural inflation So, so it's not just about the Fed. I would have asked about a Volcker analogy, but that's only monetary policy, right? And and you're looking at this in a much more holistic uh, way. I, do I think the, the Fed is actually, it's not an irrelevance, but yeah. I think it's not where you should be looking for how to position your portfolio well, structurally. What is your time horizon? So we're trying to avoid losing money on a rolling 12-month basis. Okay. But the way we do that is to put in structural assets that we think are critical for protecting capital, and then kind of encase them in other assets that allow to be agnostic to timing. So short answer is we deliberately don't have one because predicting the future is easy so long as you don't have to predict when the future is going to happen. So, um, and and in terms of the Fed being, say, less relevant, um, you don't look at the Volcker uh, scenario and say that, that Fed was able to withstand political pressures that were, you know, 10x what Jerome Powell, if not 100x what Jerome Powell faces now. It that, doesn't- that, that Fed was enabled to do what it did by political support. So uh, everyone wants to be Volcker in advance, right? Every central banker would want to run prudent monetary policy. But you need a Reagan behind you. Exactly. So after 10 years of being fed up with inflation, uh, you know, in 1974, you had the, the whip inflation now, yeah. the win campaign, yeah. didn't work. Uh, it was only after the whole what, large swathes of the voter base said, we're really sick of this. Uh, we'd like to elect someone with, who's going to support uh, orthodox monetary policy, supply side reform, happened on both sides, the Atlantic, Thatcher and Reagan. Uh, the results were pretty clear. I don't see that right now. Um, the government in Europe is uh, supporting people facing rising prices, facing inflation with more money. In the US, it's the same. Uh, if you have a high gasoline price or heating bill, you know, the states are handing out stimulus. So, yeah, I yeah. saw the German inflation print was lower today because Germany just picked up everybody's bills last month, well, <laughs> which is not really helpful, right, in the long I mean, it run. It works for a while, but yeah. exactly in the long term. Uh, so 
that's why, look, if inflation In the long term, you run out of other people's money. Were you about to say that? I, I was not, but I should have been. <laughs> that's, a, I believe, a British quote. That's Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, for us, it's a fantastic hedge as well as a return-seeking opportunity. If inflation expectations rise a lot, or people realize that the Fed doesn't have the uh, political support to tighten properly, then the premium needs to rise a lot in the bond market, in uh, the equity market, cross asset. Um, so for us, have some of that protection. Uh, there are some good return opportunities out there, but for, for the most part, uh, you know, a 5% risk-free rate is, uh, is kind of compelling. Matt, it was great having you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Matt Smith, Investment Director at Ruffer. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.